Monaco. Okay, colleagues, thank you very much for coming. My name's Ian McAllister, and I'm with my two colleagues here, Sarah Cameron and Jill Shepard. And over the next 15 minutes or so, we'll give you a bit of an overview of the top-line results from the survey. I'll talk a bit about the background to the study, and then I'll look at support for democracy, economic performance, and election issues. Sarah will talk about the parties and the party leaders, and then Jill will talk about immigration and social issues. So just a bit about the background to the study. This is the 12th in the series. It started in 1987, but we have data going right back to the 1960s. All of the surveys are, are national surveys, post-election, and we typically ask around about 250 questions of the respondents. So we know a lot about their voting history, how they participated in the election campaign. We know what they think about the leaders, the major election issues, their general political attitudes, and their social background. So we have a huge snapshot of the Australian electorate. In the 2016 survey, we interviewed just over 2,800 respondents. Half of them were drawn from the electoral register, and the other half were drawn from a sample called the geocoded national address file. And you'll find all of the results of the survey, plus all the documentation, and even the unit record files from the data sets themselves on that website. So to look first at support for democracy, what we find was that satisfaction with democracy was at its lowest level since just after the 1975 dismissal, uh, based on a 1979 survey. What we find now is that just six out of 10 of the people we interviewed said they were satisfied with democracy. That's down 26 percentage points from the high point in 2007. Trust in politicians is at its lowest level since the question was first asked in a survey in 1969. Uh, who the government is run for? Well, just 12% of the people we interviewed said that the government is run for all the people. And to give you uh, just an overview of the trend there, which is in the report, which is in your package, you'll see there's a high point in 1996 and then a higher point in 2007. Since 2007, there's been an almost incremental decrease in satisfaction with democracy. To put that in a, a comparative perspective, we now rank about the middle of the OECD established democracies. We rank number 11. Uh, seven or eight years ago, we were ranking just behind the major Scandinavian countries. Um, so we really have dropped quite considerably. And I suppose the good news is that we're well ahead of Greece, but we're heading in the, uh, <laughs> the wrong direction, unfortunately. Second thing is economic performance. And that's a thing that we ask a lot about in the election study, because obviously it's a major factor in how people vote. Um, this is an example of a, a shorter term trend where we look at the factors which actually impact on which party people chose in the election. What we find was that there was widespread pessimism about the performance of the economy, but much more significantly, really very few people thought that the government were going to have a good effect on the country's economy over the future year. And in the analysis we've done over the last two or three weeks since we got the, uh, the data set, we find that economic pessimism was a major factor impacting on the decreased liberal vote in 2016. The relevant graph for that is here, and you can see that 2016, only 13% of the people we interviewed 
thought that the government would have a good effect on the country's economy in a year's time. And to give you an example of how that did impact on the Liberal vote, that compares uh, people who thought the government would have a, a good effect, not much different, or a bad effect, broken down by how people voted in 2013 and in the most recent survey in 2016. And you'll see in 2013, 62% of coalition voters said the government would have a good effect. In 2016, the most recent survey, it was simply 25%, so a very substantial decrease there. In terms of the election issues, we obviously ask a lot of questions about that in the survey, quite specific to 2016, but we can go back and look at uh, people's opinions in previous surveys. Top-ranked issue was health and Medicare. That was followed by management of the economy. And the third-ranked issue was education. And you can see, for example, that Labour has a, a very distinct advantage on health and Medicare. Uh, and also in education, and the coalition has an advantage on management of the economy. The interesting thing is if you look at taxation, virtually no difference between how respondents perceived the two major parties, and also in superannuation, people really didn't see very much difference uh, at all. In past times, the coalition has had a much bigger advantage on health and, uh, sorry, the Labour Party's had a much bigger advantage on health and Medicare, and you'll also find in previous surveys that the coalition had a bigger advantage on taxation. How those issues actually affected the vote? When we do an analysis on that, we find that people who were concerned about government debt, there was about a 13% greater probability they would vote for the coalition. Uh, there was a reverse effect for people voting for Labour if they were concerned about health and Medicare, and then management of the economy comes in there as a third factor. Superannuation is interesting because it didn't really shift votes in the lower house, but what we find was three things. Uh, liberals who were concerned about the superannuation issue were much more likely to vote for minor parties in the Senate. So it contributed to the crossbench vote, uh, crossbench representation in the Senate. Second thing we find was that people who are concerned about superannuation were much more likely to exhibit distrust in politicians. So it affected people's general attitudes towards democracy. And we also find that it correlated very strongly with people who are concerned about health and Medicare. So it didn't have a direct effect on the vote, but it had an indirect effect through these other factors. So I'll pass on to Sarah now. Thank you very much. I'm Sarah Cameron. And from the election study in the area of political parties and the political leaders. The study highlights a number of changes in how voters view and engage with the political parties. Particularly, we're seeing a decline in partisanship for the major parties, which is indicated by a range of different measures, including a record low in how much voters like the parties, record lows in the number of Labor and Liberal partisans, a record low of 34% who use the How to Vote cards when casting their ballots, and a record low of 40% of voters who consistently vote for the same party. So to look at this in a little more depth, we can see here evaluations of how much voters like the parties on a scale from zero to 10. What this shows that is that in the previous three elections since 2010, 
The major parties have been liked a lot less than they have been previously. And in the most recent election, both Labor and Li Liberal have dipped below the midpoint of five on this 10-point scale, indicating that on average, Australians now dislike the parties more than they like the parties. Evaluations of the Greens also show that the popularity has declined since Bob Brown stepped down as leader. Here we can see uh, trends in political partisanship from the 1960s. What this shows is that we have a record number of 19% who do not align with any party at all. And for Labor and Liberal, we've got respectively 30 and 33% um, partisans amongst voters. And that's a record low um, since these questions were asked beginning in the 1960s. And we also see gradually rising partisanship for the Greens, reaching 9% in 2016. And here we can see a decline in the stability of voting patterns. In the most recent election, just 40% of voters consistently vote for the same party. And we're seeing a rise in those who consider voting for another party during the campaign. So on, a whole, on the whole, we're seeing a number of measures that point towards voters distancing themselves from the major parties. And whilst this isn't a drastic change since the 2013 election, it's a continuation of long-term trends away from the major parties. Now turning to the leader evaluations. Since 1987, the election study has tracked how much voters like the party leaders on a scale from 0 to 10, where 10 is strongly like the leader, 0 is strongly dislike, and here we see the averages over time. What this shows is that up until 2007, Australian Prime Ministers typically gained office um, with a good degree of support and popularity within the Australian public. Since 2010, Gillard, Abbott and Turnbull respectively have won elections despite low levels of popularity. So each of them have failed to cross this halfway point of five on this 10 point scale. Looking at the evaluations for 2016, we can see that Turnbull at 4.9 is more popular than Shorten at 4.2. And comparing to the previous election, we can also see that Richard Di Natale is a more popular leader for the Greens than his predecessor, Christine Milne. Now, as well as evaluating how much voters like the parties, the study also evaluates how well various characteristics describe the party leaders. Um, so this shows the results for Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull in 2016. Specifically, this shows the percentage who think the characteristic describes the leader extremely well. And both leaders compare poorly in comparison to previous main party leaders. Malcolm Turnbull is evaluated as knowledgeable and intelligent, but performs uh, poorly in a number of other areas, including honesty and trustworthiness. Shorten, on average, is the least favourably evaluated main party leader since these questions were first asked in the early 90s, um, scoring the lowest on seven of nine of these indicators, including honesty, trustworthiness, competence, and strong leadership. 
Finally, the data enables us uh, to assess how voters viewed the leadership changes in 2010, 2013 and 2015. What this shows is that there was a strong level of disapproval for the changeovers within the Labor Party in 2010 and 2013. However, in 2015, voters were roughly divided on their views of the changeover from Turnbull to Abbott with 49% approving of the change. Thank you very much and I'll hand over to Jill Shepherd. Thanks, Sarah. So I'm taking a, a fairly different look at these data. Um, I've picked out a few of the results that uh, touch on issues of immigration and asylum seekers and then uh, what I'm going to paint as a bit of a trend towards social liberalisation. So first of all, this really stands out to me that when we ask voters <clears throat> how important different issues were in deciding their vote, Immigration and asylum seekers have both jumped up to the highest level since 2001, which is famously the Tampa election. Uh, we didn't have the kind of stimulus that, uh, that the Tampa represented, so it seems to be more an underlying kind of sentiment here. It's on people's minds, and this is thinking about immigration and asylum seekers, at least here, looks like they're kind of uh, conflated, that voters are thinking about them in the same way. And this is something that tends to come out in, in survey data that people actually think about Im the issues of immigration and of asylum seekers and how we deal with asylum seekers to Australia quite differently. When we break this up by uh, who, the voters who the, the voters voted for by party, we see that that is absolutely the case. Nationals are disproportionately uh, I guess not worried necessarily, but to national voters, immigration is disproportionately important and to Liberal Party voters as well. ALP and Greens showed less, uh, less extreme attitudes in this regard of the imp on the importance of immigration. If we look at asylum seekers, here we, here we see that Greens and the ALP see asylum seekers as being very important to their vote. So the extent to which uh, to which Australians do conflate the ideas of or the issues of immigration and asylum seeker treatment seem to be pulled apart by how they vote. If we think about these issues, uh, Liberal and National Party voters talk about immigration. If we talk, uh, Greens and ALP voters talk about asylum seekers. They're probably thinking about the same things, but they talk about them in very different terms. Either way, we're seeing record highs since 2001. This is more of a prediction uh, that in over the time since 1979, a survey, uh, the Australian National Political Attitude Survey, which pre uh, preceded Ian's Australian election study, started asking issues of um, uh, moral politics or so social liberalisation on questions such as smoking and marijuana, whether we should introduce the death penalty for uh, convicted murderers and when, whether women should be able to readily attain abo <coughs> an abortion. All of these issues are slowly trending towards more liberal positions. Uh, we see the death penalty, uh, support for the death penalty be being reintroduced, falling rapidly over that time, uh, sorry, increasing rapidly over that time. Support for abortion access increasing over that time. And I think, as Ian pointed out, as voters are increasingly not 
uh, not finding economic differences between the parties, they are increasingly uh, not believing that the parties can make a difference to our household finances or even to the country's finances in this recent election, that social issues will start to play a more important role in the next few Australian elections. We see here issues that we haven't asked previously but are very topical at the moment. If a, random, if a constitutional referendum were to be held on, support, on recognition of indigen, Indigenous Australians, almost 80% of voters support that. Uh, almost 80% of uh, voters in this survey support uh, the liberalisation of euthanasia and uh, almost 70% of voters in this survey support same-sex marriage laws. Uh, I'll leave it with that and um, we'll open the floor to questions. The decline in distrust in the democratic process, uh, are there any particular demographics where this is more acute? Is it, is it more young people or those aged up to, up to 40? Is there a particular group where this is seen more than else? Yes, there is. It is younger people. And in the briefing note that we've handed out, you'll see that it's younger people, particularly people in their 20s and 30s, who are becoming more disaffected with the political process. It's also people that are not doing particularly well socioeconomically. So underlying all of this is lacklustre economic performance, a belief that the government is not particularly well equipped to deal with it, and that's underpinning a lot of it. It also, it's probably fair to say, triangulates with what we find in the ANU poll survey that we conduct two to three times a year. And we always ask an open-ended question there, uh, what is the first most important issue and the second most important issue facing Australia? Since 2010, we've seen people offering up good government. What they want is good government. They're concerned that they're not getting it. And these figures actually triangulate with that. And in the NU poll, we've been seeing maybe it's the second or third ranked issue almost for the last five or six years. Jan, you talked about uh, Bill Shorten having the least, I think it was you, sir, uh, the least favourable outcome from an opposition, um, for an opposition leader. That's um, what, uh, can you give us some sort of historical perspective? Is he, is he the least popular and was second Andrew Peacock in the 80s or what, what? Um, he's not he's not the least popular least um, favorable he's the least favorable on the leadership characteristics on average and we started asking about leadership characteristics in 1993 um, so that refers to um, on seven of those nine items, he's the lowest since those questions have been asked about main party leaders. Some of those questions began in the early 90s, uh, a couple of them began in the early 2000s. Can you tell us who, who, was, um, who was holding that unfortunate record before? I'm sure you can guess. <laughs> um, uh, it was Paul Keating. Uh, he was seen as not being compassionate. Big surprise. You can see the full details of this in the appendix to our report. Um, just a point of clarity, obviously, uh, Xenophon ran a substantial team in South Australia. Pauline Hanson ran in the last election, but your survey doesn't address the directly. No, 
No, it's a national survey, so we have voters for those parties in the survey. The problem is the numbers are really quite small, so trying to extract too much from it is actually quite difficult. Now, we have actually looked a bit at this. So, uh, for example, One Nation voters, we've got about 80 respondents who voted One Nation in the lower house and about another 30 voted One Nation in the upper house. So you can sort of look at it, but they're not particularly robust results. any party at all and you say that that's that's the highest I think in any of the survey that you've done what's the jump from the last election so there hasn't been a massive jump since the previous election it's gone from 17% to 19% um, so what we're seeing there is a gradual change over time rather than drastic changes in that area since the previous election and I guess what's interesting there is that we're one of the last democracies um, to really see this happen. We, uh, and I think most of us would argue it's because of compulsory voting. We've had really high comparatively rates of, of um, party identification. And so this is something that we probably felt we were sheltered from for a while. And increasingly it sort of seems that we're not. And the dissatisfaction with democracy and, and all of these trust figures are probably something that we've seen overseas before we've, we've seen it really manifest here. Um, region, regional data at all, H how things change regionally, how the attitudes change? Uh, we can look at that in the survey. Again, the problem is once you start disaggregating by state, you're into relatively small numbers. Now, in previous surveys, we've aggregated election studies, we've looked at state trends and so on. For national voting, there's not a huge amount of difference, actually. There tends to be much uniform swing across the states and territories. So. Certainly you see differences in Queensland, South Australia, but matter of several percentage points, and again, not something that we really pick up in our surveys. The value of these surveys is that we can look at national trends over a quite extended period. So we can go back in some cases to the 1960s, and we've asked exactly the same question and used pretty much the same methodology ever since. So you've got exact longer term perspectives once you try and disaggregate, look at particular small social groups and so on, it becomes a bit more problematic. And so what was the thing that surprised you most um, following this data for so long? Dissatisfaction with democracy, uh, lack of trust in politicians, I mean these are reaching historic lows and what it looks to me like is that you're seeing the stirrings among the public of what has happened in the United States with the election of Trump, Brexit in Britain, uh, in Italy, a variety of other European countries. Now, it's not a crisis of democracy, but what you're seeing is the start of something uh, which has happened overseas. It's coming here. And I would have thought this is a wake-up call for the political class that they really need to start addressing this. Otherwise, it's going to continue. I think there's a general sense of dissatisfaction among voters with um, the extent to which they can connect with elected representatives. So they see career politicians who make a commitment to do something and then renege on that commitment. And the obvious examples there are the carbon tax under Labour, superannuation under the Liberals, where there was firm commitments. You also see a range of elected representatives leaving parliament, taking jobs and so on with outside organisations. 
And I think this is the type of thing that fosters distrust among citizens. And a bit of, bit of literature on this and a bit of research which shows that where you've got this gray area, political elites regard it as more or less acceptable, say, that a government minister might leave and become an ambassador or a high commissioner to an overseas country. Voters tend to disapprove of this type of activity and there's actually quite a lot of it in Australia compared to other countries. We don't have rampant corruption in the political system, fortunately. In fact, we rank very highly in Transparency International surveys and so on. But we've got a lot of this grey area where politicians are seen to be getting a lot of perks. And in a situation where economic performance is not doing very well, where people are under economic pressure, this is something that grates with a lot of people in the electorate. Could you talk a bit about the faith in democracy by age and who is who has the least faith and some theories of why that might be? Um, it's, I, I think Ian found, it's the biggest drop between elections seems to have come from around the middle. It's not, an, it's not the kind of generational story that we're seeing um, elsewhere. But as Ian says, I mean, this is just the first inklings of this that we're getting here. Um, it's, it's probably not going to blow up as anything particularly obvious yet. And, and, in, and, and that really extends Ian's answer, I think, from, from the previous question. We've got some idea at the moment of where this distrust and dissatisfaction is coming from. But at the moment, we're trying to sort of prognosticate as much as anything. I think another thing that really stood out to me in this regard is voters not not being able to pick between the ALP and the Liberals, say, on tax or on superannuation. Um, we know that voters in Australia like clear signals. They like parties to be clear about what they're standing for. And if voters can't pick between those two parties or that they say there's no difference, I mean, that's, that's part of that trust in, in what a party stands for and that we trust that they're going to deliver on some broad agenda. Just to add to that, political parties in Australia are not really connecting well with younger people, and that's part of the problem. They're not using social media, uh, they're not developing uh, memberships among younger people and so on. And what we find in our surveys when we ask a question about would you still vote if it was a voluntary voting system, we find there's a very substantial drop among younger people. So they're simply not engaging in these traditional forms of politics. They don't find it very interesting. And I'm sure that's driving a lot of this. And just on that point, because I noticed that you have this graphic showing that 19% um, of people follow the election um, on the internet. Presumably that's not just The Guardian, but also um, people who are following it through Facebook and Twitter, heaven help them. But does that, do you think that that contributes to um, this uh, loss of tribalism? I do. And we also run a survey of election candidates as well, so in parallel with this. So we ask election candidates a lot of questions about the election campaign, what they did and so on. And what we find is that elected, uh, elected representatives and candidates that use the social media, do a lot on the internet and so on, actually do considerably better. The entry costs are very low, uh, the barriers are very low to actually doing this. Greens are extremely good at it, Labour elected representatives moderately good, the Liberals not very good at all. So a lot of this is feeding into the disenchantment of younger people. What they're seeing is not something in politics that they're particularly fascinated by. 
they're not less interested in politics, interestingly. So we ask questions about political interest, interest in the election campaign, and so on. Levels of interest have held up among younger people. They're just not grabbed by what the political parties are offering at the moment. And what we're seeing is a paradigm shift in the media and how people view politics. And the major political parties really haven't come to grips with this yet. That idea of an echo chamber on social media, which I think you, you kind of touched on at the end, um, there's, there's so much disputed evidence for that. And not much has been done in Australia, but if we can extrapolate from the US, it depends on who you ask and how you ask the question. But it's going to have to be making a difference, absolutely. And I think, as Ian says, um, the parties have been, the major parties are, are really culpable in a lot of this stuff. They, they haven't been... Um, they haven't been quick to engage with voters. They've, they've rested on the compulsory voting laurels and um, chickens are coming home to roost, really. Is there any connection between the decline that we're seeing in the trust in the political process and the decline in trust that we're seeing in other institutions like, like the media, like, like, like the banks, like schools, doctors? Not really. I mean, what we find with a lot of those indicators, confidence in banks, uh, religious organisations, military and so on, they tend to go up and down. Um, I'm happy to say the only one that doesn't go up and down stays, stays consistently high is universities. They stay very well. Um, but they do tend to go up and down. So 20, 30 years ago, religious organisations were one of the highest. Now they're actually one of the lowest. So there's peaks and troughs in all of this. What we've seen with um, political institutions, uh, representative institutions and so on is that over the last 10, 15 years, starting from a low level, they've continued to go down. But set against that is that even though people don't have a lot of confidence in political institutions, they felt the system was actually working pretty well for them. What we see in a lot of these results is that they're starting to think, well, the institutions are not working particularly well for us. And as I said before, it's not a crisis but it's the start of something that we've seen in other countries. It's a stirring among the mass public. In terms of issues, you've got defence and, uh, sorry, you've got uh, the economy, then secondly, um, uh, social issues. But things like defence and foreign affairs and terrorism don't even appear to, on the top ten list. I mean, has that collapsed? When, when did it collapse and, and um, is it an issue at all? Never been, it's, it's never been on the radar as long as I've been following these issues. I don't think you will have seen it, Ian, previous to that. No, we ask a series of questions about uh, defence, foreign affairs and so on, because I've got an interest in this. But as an election issue, the Vietnam War era, uh, you'd have to go back to then to see it as being something that was important. It's not an issue for voters by and large. So when we asked this open-ended question that Ian referred to earlier, um, voters, you know, or, or people who answer their phones basically to these surveys, um, spit out the first thing on their mind and that gets coded into certain categories that tends to always be uh, economic management or, or economy, and, uh, economy and jobs. Then we get usually better government or some sort of governance question and then immigration. But as we see here, immigration is half immigration and it's half asylum seeker treatment. And then it's daylight. To the next one, usually educational health. So, what's, what was the education question? I mean, 
what, what, I mean, there's a number of questions, but we ask what were the most important election issues and list um, 10 items which they then choose which was the, their top issue and their second issue. And then we also look at um, which party the voters preferred, um, Liberal, Labor or neither, on, um, on areas like education as well as health, taxation and so on. So the immigration question just said immigration. It didn't say, you know, population or anything. It didn't di differentiate with asylum seekers. I'm just just trying There's to clarify that. We ask immigration and we ask asylum seekers, and they're totally split. Right. Um, but but you but you just said immigration in the question. There's hmm? a there's actually a, so that's the question we ask regarding the election issues but there's a range of other questions asked about immigration in the survey and there's full details in this report. Ah yes and Laura what I was referring to there was a di is a different survey that Ian referred to earlier. That's the ANU poll. How about immigration compared to environment? And so, and, uh, did you correlate those two issues? In terms of like population growth yeah, and people exactly. worried about that. So this is something that I'm interested in that I've looked at in the other survey that that I run and, um, and and it's about a third. A third of people who are worried about immigration are actually worried about population growth. Any further questions? I suppose the elephant in the room is Donald Trump. You touched on it earlier, the stirrings in the United States. Is that, um, I suppose, what, what can you draw from the, from the US, US presidential election results and, and what we're seeing here today when you're surveying? Well, there's not just Donald Trump, there's Nigel Farage, there's Jeremy Corbyn, there's a variety of other people out there who we tend to call anti-politics politicians. So they're not playing the political game according to conventional rules, uh, they're being very idiosyncratic. I think what you can derive from the United States experience with this is that Trump largely got elected because of poor economic performance and that was impacting very much on the middle class. We see very similar factors here operating, and that's obviously undermining support and trust in the major political parties and politicians. So because of our very strong, highly disciplined political parties, because we've got very frequent elections based on compulsory voting, it's going to take longer for this trend to come here and actually impact on us. But we can see it. We can see the start of it in these results. When exactly was it taken, sorry, the survey? Uh, we went into the field on the Monday after the federal election and the survey was in the field for about three months based on a mail-out, mail-back questionnaire and also there was an online component there as well where people could actually fill it in online. But all after the election? Absolutely, yeah. yep. On the Trump question, I, I would just sort of want to add, I guess, as a, um, as a sign of optimism, is, uh, although Ian's right, I mean, it, it will take a long time or, you know, probably years, if anything is happening, for this to manifest in the surveys. But, some, but what did hold up in this survey was strong support for the immigration program. We're still really supportive of, of the current level of immigration. I think it's a pretty stable and high number of Australians who want uh, even more immigration, but most people are happy with the current rates of immigration. And we tend to agree overwhelmingly that immigrants provide social and economic benefits. So if there is this economic anxiety that turns into a kind of manifest uh, racial anxiety or um, lack of support for immigration as a program, then that we're not seeing that here yet. Immigr people are worried about immigrate. Well, 
um, immigration is increasing as an, an importance, but people aren't ready to turn on immigration as a kind of Australian program. Oh, her favourability was not tested in this election, just the leaders I showed on the screen earlier. Um, previously, I don't believe so. Uh, well, we, oh, have, we, we have asked about her popularity in previous election studies in 1998-2001. Um, they're in the, re in the report and the online appendix. Uh, she was, as you would expect, relatively unpopular in 1998. Um, she was slightly more popular after she served her jail term, so there's probably some moral in there somewhere. The, the difficulty is obviously with such a detailed survey, getting volunteers that are in any way representative of the Australian community. Um, and you indicated yourself, you know, just on a state-by-state -state basis, it's very difficult to extrapolate results from the survey into meaningful figures. Uh, how confident are you about the, the findings overall? Well, we always look at the um, distribution of the sample. We look at the age, uh, gender, socioeconomic uh, profile and so on. What we find is it's pretty similar to the general population. So we, we do some weighting with the survey to make sure it is totally representative, but I'd be pretty confident. Uh, when we look at trends on these questions, if there was something that was uh, very much off trend, we might sort of worry about it, but all of these figures are within the trend, so might be two, one, two percent either way in terms of sampling error, but certainly not much more than that. And that's what makes those dissatisfaction, distrust questions so interesting, right, is that everything else is completely stable, and then you have these huge blips. That, that I don't think can be attributed to changing the sample or into some kind of methodological, you know, yeah, blip. Thank you. Any further questions? Okay, well, thank you very thank much you. for coming.